Welcome to Noggin, the Simple Psychology Podcast, where we discuss scientific research in simple and exciting ways that is applicable to everyone. I'm Ben Rasmussen. And I'm McKay Heaton. And we are your hosts. Welcome back to Noggin, the Simple Psychology Podcast. Today, I want you to imagine that you are a doctor. For some of you, that may be pretty easy because you might be a doctor. But if you're not a doctor, it may be a little bit harder. Imagine you're a doctor and you have these patients come in that are blind. Okay. They can't see, they don't use their eyes, and they are complaining that their eyes are so itchy, like so itchy that it's hard, for, you know, like they, they're just bothering their lives. Like they want to be able to enjoy their life without sight and just not have itchy eyes. And so lots of patients are coming in that are blind that have itchy eyes and you don't know what to do. And so you collaborate with some doctors and you guys are thinking, you're like, one doctor says, hey, well, why don't we just take out their eyes? And everyone else is like, hmm? (laughs) But then they're like, well, maybe you have a point, (laughs) right? So they're not seeing, they, you're like, their eyes are causing them lots of issues. So why don't you just take the eyes out? And then like, I mean, they're not using them anyways, right? (laughs) So just like take them out, see what happens. and so. You decide to do that, okay? So you take out these blind people's eyes to see if it can relieve their disturbed, you know, they're just very itchy, itchy eyes. And the people whose eyes you took out, they actually come back and say, hey, like, I I don't have itchy eyes anymore because I don't have eyes. But now I have a really hard time sleeping and my family members say I'm a bit grumpier too. So these people, they started taking, this actually happened, like they would take people's eyes out and then they noticed that when the people would come back, they'd be like grumpier and they would have a hard time sleeping. And people were like, what on earth? I have no idea what's going on. But it did relieve them of their dry eye symptoms. So today we're going to talk about circadian rhythms. You may have heard the word. I'm guessing you have and you know kind of what they are and it's like sleeping and stuff like that, but you're not quite sure what it actually is. And so we want to talk a little bit more about it so you can understand it because I know if you understand circadian rhythms and your body a little bit more, just basic things, it's really going to improve your life because that's what happened to me. When I learned about this, I was like, wow, this makes so much sense. and It's so much easier to make decisions. So it was helpful for me. So we want to talk to you about it. But before we get into like our studies, I just want to give you a little history. So the first time people started studying circadian rhythms was in 1938. So this researcher, he tested people throughout the day on their ability to do certain tasks like mirror writing, decoding, dealing cards, multiplication, etc. I'm guessing they were decoding like Morse code because it was in 1938, but (laughs) that's only a guess. So he noticed that he would test these people like just, you know, every two hours throughout the day. And he noticed that their performance had a nice curve. It was higher in the morning and then it dropped off in the evening. And he was like, what on earth? How does that happen? You know, he's like, what, why are they good in the morning and not good in the evening? He's like, what's going on? And then he also, just because he was like kind of doing a little shotgun shot into like kind of guessing what it could be, he took their body temperatures while he tested them as well. And he noticed that the body temperature curve throughout the day was about the same as their performance on these tests. So it like went up and then back down. And so he was like, what the heck? Is body temperature like regulating how well we do mentally or like, you know, on these certain tasks? And so he started to notice that our body had certain rhythms. And so 
circadian rhythms, what circadian means, means one day. This guy started to notice, oh my goodness, like we have rhythms that occur every single day. Like our body temperature follows the same curve. It's really warm in the morning and then it slowly cools off at night. And then from that, more and more people started researching and noticing like, oh, this is like more than just body temperature. There's lots of things that happen every single day in our body. Like, you know, the amount of cortisol or certain molecules like leptin and ghrelin or anything like that. But obviously that comes way later. But that's what circadian rhythms are, daily rhythms. So how do circadian rhythms relate to this story of blind people having their eyes surgically removed? Oh, we will get to that. <laughs> First, let's talk about your study. We'll, we'll, we'll keep our listeners on the edge of their seats. <laughs> you know, their cars are driving. I'm sure they're gripping the steering wheel harder on their drive now. <laughs> wow, this is suspenseful. I know. So... Our first research paper we're going to talk about today is called Living Without Temporal Cues, a Case Study. It's by Revel, Cook, Welch, Roll, Skeen, and Madrid. It was published in 2020 in Frontiers in Physiology. So this is a really cool study. We talked about this in my behavioral neurobiology class. So as I'm talking about this study, I kind of also wanted to share some fun facts that I learned about circadian rhythms from that class. I had to whip out my old notebook and look through my old notes. Good thing you I, keep those? Yeah, I do. I Just burn. for times like this. <laughs> <laughs> there have been multiple times where I've gone back to previous notebooks and been like, wow, I'm really glad I kept this. <laughs> yeah, I, I searched through the ashes of that one you know, bonfire that I had and I, I recreated my notes. <laughs> That's funny. No, I just have a huge stack of not nothing from high school or anything, but college. I have all most of my college notebooks. Yeah. On, honestly, I only keep my neuroscience notes. That kind of shows how, ner how nerdy I am. <laughs> it's like it's I keep my neuros. It's it really is. <laughs> I keep my neuroscience notes, and I have gone back to them a few times because I'm actually interested in them. But every other class, mm -hmm. I definitely burn. <laughs> So to get things started with this research article today, I wanted to share some fun facts to kind of help set the stage. So we have lots of different types of rhythms. Like McKay mentioned, the circadian rhythms are about 24 hours or one day long. But there are other types of bodily rhythms. There's ultraradian rhythms, which are less than circadian rhythms. They're every couple of hours. There's infraradian rhythms, which are more than 24 hours, such as like a menstrual cycle. Um, there's diurnal, which is spaced with day and night. And then there's also circannual, which is like a yearly rhythm. So there's different types of rhythms. The main thing to get here is our bodies are constantly on these cycles, on these rhythms, whether that's a daily rhythm, an hourly rhythm, or 90 minutes, or a monthly rhythm. But just to kind of show you an example of this, rhythms help us and other animals anticipate events before they happen. So birds, for example, migrate before the weather gets cold. So before the weather even starts getting cold and giving them external signs that it's time to migrate, their internal body clocks are telling them that it's time to fly north or south for the winter. So another thing that is really interesting is without external cues, such as the sun telling us what time of day it is, our natural body clock has a rhythm that is a little bit longer than the 24-hour cycle. So our natural rhythm is about 25 to 27 hours. And that is displayed by the study that we're going to talk about. So this study is a case study, which means it's just one individual. And researchers do this in a very exploratory fashion. So when something is being tested before it's sent to the masses like a vaccine or some sort of medication or something they're going to try it on thousands of people but before they do that they try it on hundreds of people and before they do that they try it on even fewer people and before they do that they try it on animals and things like that so in the research world 
research questions are tested many different times on many different scales and it can be useful in the beginning stages to do a case study which is where you just follow one person and you kind of see what happens with them before you try it with lots of other people so this case study was very famous it was on bbc i think there's a documentary about it so you can go ahead and watch that if you are interested i will go home and watch that i didn't know <laughs> yeah so what they did is for 10 days, they had this participant be in a bunker underground with no direct human contact and no knowledge of actual clock time. So he was beneath ground. He couldn't see the sun outside. He didn't have any clocks, no phone, no TV or anything like that. And he would speak to researchers kind of just through, I think he had a phone with him. But yeah, he had a phone that he could call. He called twice throughout the 10 days. Uh -huh. I think So they called him twice. Yeah. And he had a camera too. He mm -hmm. had a little camera recorder that he could record his own emotions and thoughts mm -hmm. with but the settings were on dim they yeah. they, they made that very explicit <laughs> in the experiment <laughs> yeah yeah so and th th he was also able to communicate with the researchers because he was able to control when lights turned on when lights turned off and they were also able to control that but the main thing to know here is he was by himself underground for 10 days nobody to talk to no knowledge of what time it was the experiment was set up in three stages. So there was the first stage, which was self-selected light-dark cycle, which means he was able to wake up when he wanted and turn the lights on, and he was able to go to bed when he wanted and turn the lights off. And when the lights were on, they were bright enough so that it was as light as just your average room in daylight. And when the lights were off, it was completely dark. Stage two was constant dim light. So for the next couple of days, they had all day and all night, really dim lighting. They even gave him like a headlamp to be able to see in different parts of the bunker because it was dark in there. And then the third stage was the light-dark cycle with early wake-up. So he could decide when he wanted to go to bed, but at six in the morning, he didn't know it was six in the morning, but that's the time it was, researchers would turn the lights on and force him to wake up. Another thing to note here too with this is he was allowed to choose when he did all of his activities. So he could have his meals whenever he was hungry, he could exercise whenever he was ready to exercise, whenever he was feeling like it, and he could go to bed whenever he wanted. And that's not to say that he was snacking all day and napping all day and then doing a few push-ups, but he could choose at what time he wanted to have dinner and he would eat dinner, not just snacking all day. And he'd choose what time he wanted to go to bed and he'd go to bed for the night. It wasn't just like napping and stuff. So what happened is really interesting. First, the researchers noticed that his clock, his internal clock of what time he thought it was, became more and more wrong as the days went on. So they had him estimate pretty much every day. When he woke up and when he went to bed, he would estimate what time it was. And at first, he was pretty close. So for the first couple of days, he's only about a half hour off. But the longer the experiment went on, the further away he got. So at the beginning of stage two, when the lights were dim all the time, he was over two and a half hours off and by the time they started stage three he was over four hours off so by the time they gave him kind of that cue for stage three when they would wake him up at the beginning of the day at six in the morning he got closer and he came back to within an hour i believe but when the lights were just on all the time and he didn't have anything to reference he got really far off and they also noticed that just like I mentioned, his circadian rhythm was longer than 24 hours. He got slowly more and more off. So he, he was living a, a 25 to 27 hour day instead of a 24 hour day. And so the first day he was awake during the day and slept during the night. And then he'd get up a little bit later and be awake during the day, a little bit into the night, and then he'd sleep. And the next day he'd wake up later into the day and then so on and so forth until at one point, by the time they entered into stage three, when they were waking up, him up at 6 a.m., he only slept three hours the night before because the clock had continued to shift every day. And so he went to bed 
at 3 a.m. just because that's when he was tired and then he got up at 6 the next day because he was forced to get up. Wow, that's, I mean, if you think about it, like one hour, not that bad. But over the course of a couple of days, like that adds up really, really fast. Yeah, for sure. So if they would have let him keep going like this, he would have totally gone full circle and even landed right back in the right place probably. But this is only a 10-day experiment, so they didn't get that far. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so other interesting things to note here too is the participant slept longer in stage one when he was allowed to choose when the lights went on and off. So he slept for an average of almost 10 hours in stage one, and then he slept less hours in the dim-lit stage. So he would sleep for about eight hours in the dim-lit stage. That's very, very intriguing. I wonder why that is. I'm yeah, sure. I, don't know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> dim lit. I'm sure it has to do with light, I'm sure, but I wonder what the exact causes are, you know? Yeah, I don't know. And so there were tons of other things that they measured. They had him wear something on his wrist to measure his body temperature. They measured his sleep. They measured his physical strength, his mood, things like that. The main takeaway from all of those measurements is they cycled and they were very predictable. So his mood was best in the morning and it tapered off and he was the most depressed in the evening. <laughs> me too dude <laughs> me too after 9 30 <laughs> you get grumpy mckay <laughs> mckay best by 9 30 p.m <laughs> <laughs> that's right best if used by <laughs> that yeah. so true. You, you don't want curdled mckay after 9 30 no <laughs> <laughs> uh his physical strength was also best in the morning or morning in air quotes because sometimes it was after waking up and it was the middle of the afternoon but it was early in his day was when his physical strength was at its best and it's at its weakest in his evenings which goes along exactly with the research on rhythms our body has these rhythms and they can be messed up if we mess them up with artificial light. So if you remember in stage two, he didn't sleep as much because the light was on all the time. That's not to say that the light caused that, but there is a lot of research that shows, and we talked about this in my class, that exposure to artificial lighting can disrupt your circadian rhythm. So you're more likely to get in car accidents, have daytime fatigue. Too much artificial lighting is also associated with things like diabetes and obesity and other problems and disorders. So in today's world, we're obviously surrounded constantly by artificial light, and those things can be harmful for us because it can disrupt our rhythms and our sleep cycle and things like that. So my last fun fact that I wanted to share before we toss it over to McKay is on the topic of cycles and rhythms. So we all know that females have a hormone cycle, which is easily marked by their period at the end of that cycle. Maybe not all of us know that, but you should know that if you're listening. <laughs> yes. If you did not know that. If, if you still haven't had the talk yet and you're a boy <laughs> and you don't know girls have periods, they do. Yeah. It's welcome. once a month. <laughs> welcome to earth. Glad you could join us. So yeah, females have that hormone cycle, but fewer people know that males also have a hormone cycle. It isn't quite monthly and it varies for men. So some men, there's also lots of debate on this. I've heard Fewer people say that it cycles seasonally, so like every four months. A lot of them say it's like bi-monthly or monthly. But anyways, the important thing is that male hormones cycle in a similar fashion, although it's different hormones, different levels and things like that, but they cycle just like female hormones do. There's just not that external cue, like a period that women have to tell men that their hormones are cycling. But lots of research shows that men are moodier at different types of the month they get hungrier in different times of the month they're more sexual and less sexual in different times of the month there's just lots of flows to human hormones and so that was just a fun fact i want to bring up that male and female hormones cycle yeah that makes a lot of sense i mean i've heard a lot about 
the seasonal one, how like men's testosterone levels are higher in the fall or something like that. Uh-huh. I just heard about that. Just yeah. Rumor on the streets. Right. Yeah. <laughs> rumor on the uh, scientific streets, you know, but anyway, it sounds like it's still, they're still trying to crack the code on male hormone cycles. Yeah. Well, and even on female hormone cycles too, there's still some arguments out there, even in the scientific world that female hormones cycle according to like the lunar cycle and things like that. There's just, there's yeah. a lot of science still has a lot of finding out to do when it comes to hormones and things like that but we do know that female hormones cycle and so do male hormones and it affects mood hunger sexual drive physical strength things like that yes okay cool so with ben's study i wanted to touch on things called zeitgebers before we move on to mine in ben's study that he talked about the guy his natural body clock was a bit longer than 24 hours and we saw that because his day shifted by like an hour-ish every day that he was underground, right? Mm-hmm. So because of that, his day shifted, but our days don't shift. Mm-hmm. So you may be questioning like, well, my day doesn't shift. So why did this guy's day shift and my day not shift? That's because of things scientists have called Zeitgebers. So Zeitgeber just means time giver. In German, I believe. Yeah, it's a German word. German word for time giver. And so these are the things that give our body the time, right? So our body can adjust its internal clock. And that's what Zeitgebers do. They adjust our internal clock. It's like if your watch is off, the old, you know, the cool watches with the two hands. I have a digital watch, so I, I you know. <laughs> New age <watch>. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so those old watches, they had those little like... uh knobs if you pushed and then you could twist your little pointer to the right time if it got off that's kind of what a zeitgeber is it's like you know if your body starts getting off zeitgebers would be like oh boop nope twist back to the right time and then it, it gets you on the right time so zeitgebers examples of them are like viewing light so if the sun is shining most of the time we're going to be awake because we are not nocturnal mm-hmm. we we are awake during the day another zeitgeber is eating that's a big one what time you eat can affect when certain molecules are released in your body and when you get sleepy and stuff like that. Exercising has also been shown to affect, you know, when you get sleepy. So what time you exercise is also a zeitgeber. Body temperature, like I discussed earlier, is one. Our body temperature starts warmer when we wake up and it slowly goes down at night. It's actually been shown they have these body suits for people who have a hard time sleeping. And it just lowers your body temperature and it actually helps them sleep a lot better because they have a lower body temperature. So that's interesting to note. It's another thing that's like, yeah, that's a zeitgeber. If you're really, really hot right before bed, then maybe like cooling yourself down somehow would help you go to bed faster because our body tends to be cooler at nighttime. Mm-hmm. Those are examples of zeitgeber. So I, I hope you can see how now like, oh, yeah, that guy, his clock would probably shift because light wasn't there. His eating time was totally left up to him. So that might have shifted too because light wasn't there. And then exercising shifted along with eating too. And then his body temperature shifted because maybe he was exercising right when he was supposed to go to sleep. So his body temperature was warmer. So he stayed up longer, you know, things like that. So those are zeitgebers. And they're the things that, you know, adjust your clock. I also wanted to give you an example of how our clock shifts that everyone knows jet lag. That is a perfect example of how zeitgebers work, as well as how our body clocks work. So, you know, if you fly from one place to another and it's really far, you're going to have jet lag, right? 
and jet lag lasts about eh, you know like three days to a week, right? Yeah, they say it's a day for every time zone you change. So if you change like nine hours ahead, it might take you like nine days. If you go four hours ahead, it might take you like four days. That's like a general. Okay. I did not know that. Yeah. Ben's wife works in the airline industry, <laughs> so she probably knows. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you know, you have this time period where you're like, oh, jet lag, I'm going to be tired. So that's an example of your body trying to shift. So if you switch time zones, the sun's going to be a little bit different in the part of the world that you just flew to. And you're going to eat at different times, and you're going to exercise at different times, and you're going to go to sleep at different times. And because of that, your body's like, oh, I'm used to going to bed earlier, but now I'm going to bed super late. What's going on? And so you'll be really, really tired because these rhythms that keep your body awake and asleep when they're supposed to be are getting disrupted. So that jet lag is going to wear off though, right? Everyone knows it wears off after an hour per time zone, right? Or a day per time zone, sorry. <laughs> yeah, don't quote me on that. That's just something I've heard. I, that's, that's not scientifically backed. Okay. I mean, it might be scientifically backed, but I don't know if it is or not. But, but yeah, but yeah. anyways, you, you have this time period where it's going to go away and it goes away because of Zeitgebers because your body takes in these Zeitgebers and it's like, oh, you know, it's really sunny outside. I should be awake. I shouldn't be sleeping right now. But it takes some time to adjust, and then your body eventually adjusts. So that is an example of Zeitgebers. These timekeepers, they're really important because our body has this clock on the inside, and it's just going at its normal rate, and it's based on the things around us. But then once that gets disrupted, we still have the ability to change back to normal. Because imagine if you flew to another part of the world and you could just never adjust. <laughs> that would be miserable. Yeah, we couldn't you, move. I know, you'd have to stay in your time zone or else... You would just be awake at night. You know, I guess you'd be a nocturnal person somewhere uh -huh. else, you know. But thankfully, our bodies adjust. So those are really good examples of circadian rhythms at work and zeitgebers at work. So my paper that I found is published in Cell, which is a great journal. And it was published in 2018. So pretty recent, four years ago. And the authors are Fernandez Fogerson. I think that's Fogerson. Osprey. Thompson, Lane, Severin, and Hattar. So a lot of authors. This study was crazy in-depth, so I understand why there are so many authors. <laughs> but it's called Light Affects Mood and Learning Through Distinct Retina Brain Pathways. Super amazing study. The question the researchers were getting at in this study was they had an idea of this certain area of the brain. They were like, we think this affects mood, and we think this brain area is affected by light. Yes. Okay. So before we continue, I want to back up a bit. Before I discuss this paper, I want to talk about another part of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. So Ben mentioned our internal clock. And according to research nowadays, our internal clock is the suprachiasmatic nucleus. It's just this part of the brain and it is involved in and helps regulate circadian rhythms. So, you know, those bodily functions like, oh, my body warming up at the beginning of the day, suprachiasmatic nucleus is involved. They call it the SCN for short, so you don't have to say, you know, 10 syllables. So I'll just call it the SCN. <laughs> Gotta love those neuroscience acronyms. That's right. So this SCN is involved in the increase in cortisol at the beginning of the day that helps you wake up and the increase in temperature at the beginning of the day that helps you wake up. It's involved in leptin and ghrelin, these two molecules that help you be hungry and full. And it's very complex. And it's just a part of the brain that is involved in all these things. Ben, am I making sense so far? Yeah, I think so. Part okay. of the brain, 
regulates our body clock. <laughs> yep, SCN. That's what it's called. And so what researchers have found is that just like this study showed of this guy, how his clock shifted and just how we learned and we discussed how your body can change your circadian rhythm based on Zeitgebers and light, they noticed that there are these retinal cells inside of your retina called intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. You will be quizzed on that later. Yep. Memorize it. Remember it. <laughs> Anyways, so those cells project to the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And by project, I mean they just make a little neuron pathway to the suprachiasmatic <laughs> nucleus. The, the neuron wave. <laughs> That's right. There are these cells in your eyes that respond to more than just seeing, which is crazy, right? Like you think your eyes yeah. are just there to see. Like you think that's all your eyes are used for, but they're not. So your eyes actually take in this information about light from the sun, and then they send it to the suprachiasmatic nucleus, and then the suprachiasmatic nucleus says, oh, I'm getting sun signals. What does that mean? Time to wake up, mm. right? That's how your body like actually receives a signal. So say you go you know, to a different place, and you jump forward in time four hours, right? So you wake up four hours earlier than you normally would have if you were flying somewhere. Your eyes, these intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, remember, for the <laughs> quiz later, they have light hit them and then they send info to the suprachiasmatic nucleus and then the suprachiasmatic nucleus is like, what? This is four hours early. Oh, okay, I guess I'll switch a little bit, you know, and then you slowly change. So those are examples of cells that we know they exist and we know they're in your eye and we know that they project to the suprachiasmatic nucleus, and they are not involved in seeing. They don't aid in seeing at all. It just aids in your circadian rhythms. Hmm. So let's bring it back to the hook at the beginning. Here we go. So those blind people, Ben, I know you've been on the edge of your seat for so <laughs> long. So those blind people had their eyes removed because doctors were like, well, eyes are only good for seeing. However, eyes are not only good for seeing. In blind people, the intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells probably still worked. I couldn't say in all of them. I don't know. I wasn't there. I didn't test any of them. But they still worked in some of these people because, why? They had a hard time sleeping. Their suprachiasmatic nucleus didn't know what time it was because it didn't receive that light signal from the sun. And it stopped receiving light signals, so it was all whacked up. Those blind people's eyes were still working, just not with seeing. Wow, they, that's They were crazy. working with something else, right? Yeah. And so this next paper actually talks about grumpiness in the people, or it relates to that. So that's why I'm super excited to talk about it. And it's really new and like hardly anyone knows about it. So you should be on the edge of your seat too. That's hot off the press. <laughs> that's right. 2018. Okay. So back to the paper. So these authors knew that there were cells in the eye that projected to the suprachiasmatic nucleus. But they also, in earlier studies, had seen and found like, oh, there's another spot. And they think that there's another type of cell in the retina that actually projects to a different part of the brain that is not used for seeing or the suprachiasmatic nucleus. They think they found a third branch in the eye that projects out to the back of the brain, which is huge, huge, right? Super exciting. They call this area the perihibinular nucleus. You'll be tested on that as well. That's quiz number two. <laughs> so this part of the brain is just a separate part. It's not the suprachiasmatic nucleus. It's not the lateral geniculate nucleus, which is used for seeing. It's not those two. It's a whole different one. Basically, in this study, they took rats, did a whole bunch of neuroscience, <laughs> and proved that 
there are neurons that do exist that project from the eye to this perihabinular nucleus, and that these neurons are affected by light. Boom. Yep. Am I going to explain the study to you? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> because we are not in the simple psychology <laughs> podcast. <laughs> That's right. That goes against our that goes against our motto, our <laughs> our belief. <laughs> it's like it is way too complex. We're gonna stick to our values here. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So they proved it. End of story. They proved it. But this is the exciting part. They also showed that when the neurons went from the eye to the perihabinular nucleus, it projected to another spot. It went to another spot. And that other spot is the ventral medial prefrontal cortex. Ooh. Wow. This is all just so arbitrary for everyone. <laughs> They're like, I don't even know what's going on. It's just big words. I'm sorry. I'm trying to stick to my vows and keep it simple. Quiz question number three. <laughs> ben, does that ring a bell for anything that you know of? The prefrontal cortex? Yes. Executive functioning. Yes, executive functioning is one of them. I, they actually talk about that in this, but also mood. Mm, yeah, remember mood. Phineas Gage? Oh, I'm yeah. sure you've talked about oh, Phineas yeah. Gage. Phineas Gage, the man who had a pipe go through the front of his brain, and he lived, but he <laughs> lived grumpily, hap- <laughs> gr- grumpily ever after. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth. Yeah, Phineas Gage, railroad worker, hit a spark, blew some dynamite, boom, rod goes through his face, literally through his face. Yeah. And they pulled it out. He's alive. But after that happened, everyone says he's the grumpiest man alive. Not really, but, you know, they just said he changed completely. Yeah, he had a big personality change. He wasn't very happy. He was prone to anger, things like that. So Phineas Gage, super grumpy after he has the rod shoved through the front part of his brain. These researchers saw that, you know, this perihabinular nucleus projected to this part of the brain that's kind of involved in mood and executive functioning. And they were like, well, I bet that, you know, if it's involved in this, then light affects our mood. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So they they said, you know, if it receives input here, then it must affect where it goes. So what they did was they actually just X'd out. They said, no neurons, you won't work anymore to the neurons in the perihabinular nucleus of mice. So a whole bunch of fancy, complicated neuroscience and boom, those neurons don't work anymore. So if they did that, what would they see in mice? They would shift these mice's circadian rhythms and they would see no change in mood. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Because they wouldn't see any change in mood because that area is not working anymore. So that area can't project to the mood place and say, hey, you should be grumpy right now, right? Mm -hmm. So what they did was they took two groups of mice and they housed them in certain time intervals. And one of the intervals is T7 interval. And what that means is they show light for three and a half hours, and then they show darkness for three and a half hours. And then they have a T24 interval, which is light for 12 hours, darkness for 12 hours. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. 12 so, plus 12 equals 24. Good job, Ben. <laughs> he passed math. So the T7 housing cycle has already been shown and known to actually create a depressed mood and symptoms in mice. So if you show them light every three and a half hours and then darkness for three and a half hours, they get depressed-like symptoms. And so they showed these mice that on purpose so then they could see, okay, well, we're going to cut out this part of the brain to see what it does when we put them through weird light cycles and see what happens. So the mice in the T7 light cycle did not show as depressed moods as they would have if they did not have the perihabinular nucleus cut out. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? 
Yeah, so these mice had that part of their brain cut out. And so when they were shown depressing amounts of light, the, the T7 cycle, which is makes them depressed, since they didn't have that part of the brain, they were not depressed. Yes, that's crazy. Yeah, wow. I mean, this has many implications. They haven't proven this in humans. They haven't said, oh, this definitely exists in humans as well. They've only found it in mice mm -hmm. and, and rats. And so that's different. But it's huge implications, right? It's like, yeah. well, they're mammals too. Maybe we have it as well. And so this study is super interesting because it's like, well, there is a thing called seasonal affective disorder, mm -hmm. which is, Ben, you're the psychology man. Yeah, it's pretty much just like seasonal depression. So this often happens in the winter when the sun is not out as often. So nights are really long and days are really short in the winter and people tend to have more seasonal depression in the winter. Yeah, so this perihibinular nucleus, which receives information from the sun's light and then sends it to your ventromedial prefrontal cortex and says, hey, it's sunny outside. Be happy. Woohoo. Mm -hmm. Or it's like, hey, there's no sun. Be grumpy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's very oversimplified uh -huh. because this is the Simple Psychology podcast, <laughs> but it suggests that that could be the case in seasonal affective disorder. Mm -hmm. Not saying it is, not projecting anything past that i'm just telling you like this is what they did this is what they found and it's awesome yeah. so maybe that could be something for you to think about as you are going throughout your day like hey am i getting a lot of sunlight in as well as sunlight this is just a note sunlight and artificial light are completely do completely different things to your retina just so you know so sunlight is very important it does different things than just an artificial light could mm -hmm. ever do but anyways so for me, that was one of the takeaways that I had. Ben, do you have any takeaways you want to talk about? Yeah, so my major takeaway from this is routines and rituals. So the best way to help our body clock is to have a routine. A routine when you're waking up, a routine during the day, and a routine when you're going to bed. So going to bed and getting up around the same time every day and having a bedtime routine that signals to your body it's time for bed can be really helpful. Another thing that any sleep psychologist will tell you is your bed should be for sleeping only. So divide your life up into its specific areas if you can. If you can work and recreate in other places than your bed, then do that. And reserve that for sleeping only, just so that when you get into bed, that signals your body, oh, it is time for me to sleep right now. Instead of, I don't know if it's time for me to sleep right now, watch TV or do work because I'm in my bed and I do all those things. Your body just gets kind of confused and it will help you out if you signal to your body, I'm getting in bed, the only thing I do in bed is sleep, therefore I must be going to sleep. That can be really helpful. And some other things that psychologists suggest with bedtime routines and things like that is turning screens off a significant amount of time before you go to bed. So if you're going to bed at 10.30, maybe turn the TV off at 10. Having some sort of de-stressor from the day, something that will take your mind off of things. So maybe reading a, oh look, a fiction book is coming up again. How useful. <laughs> wow. Look at that. Yeah. So reading like a fiction book, something that will just entertain you and help you be more empathetic <laughs> um, before bed, that could be really useful as well. But just kind of doing the same thing every evening to signal to your body, oh, wow, it's 10. My, my phone is turning off. Maybe I'm going to bed in a half hour. Oh, wow, I'm opening a book and it's really interesting and I'm feeling more empathetic. I must be getting ready to go to sleep in a little bit. Oh, and I'm in my bed that I only sleep in. That's crazy. I must be going to sleep. So if you go to a sleep psychologist, that's kind of like the, the first wave of trying to overcome things like insomnia and stuff like that. And just other trouble sleeping is routines and rituals, only sleeping in your bed, things like that. So that's my main takeaway is do your body a favor and try and keep it on schedule, have routines. Sweet. Yeah. 
another thing I learned from one of my neuroscience teachers was that, well, that she pointed out was that we should not, based on this information, circadian rhythms and our body clocks, we should not be staying up late on the weekends because that's just not how our bodies are built. Actually, it's like if you stay up late on the weekends, you're basically just jet lagging your body because say normally you go to bed at 10 and on the weekends, it's just, you know, Friday, Saturday, you go to bed at like two in the morning and let's say you're good and you know, sleep is so important for you. And so you're like, I'm going to get eight hours of sleep no matter what. So you get eight hours of sleep, right? So you sleep 10 to six Monday through Friday, and then you sleep two to 10, you know, Saturday, Sunday. Okay. That just jet lags your body, right? Because it's like you flying somewhere and then getting jet lag and then going to sleep later. And then your body clock, your SCN, remember the SCN, the quiz is still coming. (laughs) It is, it's like on Friday, it's like, well, what's going on here? Like you were supposed to go to bed four hours ago, you know? (laughs) And, And then it's like all whacked up and he's like, well, now I have to change everything. And then he starts changing things because you stay up late two nights in a row. And then the next day you're like, well, I got to go to bed because I got to get up for work. And you go to bed at 10 o'clock and then your SCN's like, well, what on earth is going on here? (laughs) Because I just changed everything and now you change back. (laughs) And so now you're going to be tired. And so it's like, you're tired for the people wonder why they're tired for the whole week. But I mean, if you look at the biology, it's you're jet lagging yourself every weekend. And so for me, I'm going to take what Ben suggested very seriously. Go to bed and get up around the same time every day. I'm just saying like, do your best. You still got to live life. Like I get it. You stay up late on the weekend sometimes, but just, you know, try not to go to bed at two in the morning. You know, if, if you go to bed at 10, like try to get to bed by, you know, like 11, 30, 11, mm-hmm. you know, stay up late, have a good time, but also keep in mind, like it is going to affect you if you, if you do do that. Mm-hmm. So that's my takeaway. So with that, we invite you all to get out a pen and paper for our quiz. Question number one. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Good night, everybody. You have been listening to Noggin, the simple psychology podcast. Thank you for listening to our show. We really appreciate it. We have shared with you only a few articles of the thousands that have been published on this subject. Though we wish we could go more in depth, we hope you've enjoyed our introduction and interpretation of this topic. We don't claim to know everything, but we have shared with you our takeaways from reading this research. I'm McKay. And I'm Ben. And we hope you have a great rest of your day.